0: In terms of growth, the United States has been failing on that contract since the mid-1970s. That's not getting any better.
1: Welcome back to uh, On the Margin, everyone. Uh, I almost said Hidden Forces uh, because today I'm joined by the host of Hidden Forces, Mr. Dimitri Kofinas. How are you doing, Dimitri?
0: I'm good. How are you, Michael? I'm
1: excellent. I'm excellent, my man. I'm really excited to have you on the show, not only because of your erudite knowledge, uh, but because of this amazing bookshelf that you have uh you're it's really fine. showing me up uh, this is you're my little part,
0: you're only seeing part of it you're only seeing part of it <laughs> uh
1: this is my little this, this measly the, uh
0: this is the uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking right now at the very top though there's some of some of the spiritual new agey sort of philosophical stuff at the very top but then below that there's a lot of political history and uh there's actually you can see it right there one of my favorite books i've talked about on the shelf The Land of Desire. It's a history of consumer culture in America. I feel like everyone needs to read that book. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of Austrian stuff, some financial stuff there, House of Morgan. I'll
1: put put it on the list for me too. I've been, I was trying to work my way through in honor of this Bretton Woods conference that we're doing uh, soon in Mm -hmm. August, the battle for Bretton Woods. Um, I will admit I got about 300 pages in and I called it quits. I was like, it's too, too much, too much me. A lot of interesting information.
0: Too many anecdotes
1: little bit little bit dense i switched uh, so dune is coming out later this year and i was like i have not read dune so i embarked on another 600 page novel but that one i did make it through really excellent by the way highly recommend that one
0: that uh, looks like a good book that you're reading though that's what the house of morgan was like it was just it's just a lot of just very dense it's like a classic churnow book yeah very dense.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm jealous. Uh, One of your recent guests on your show was Niall Ferguson. My favorite book of all time is The Ascent of Money, which is also on my tiny little bookshelf back there. But that one I've read multiple times. And that was a big, uh, you know, we talked about before, I have no background really in finance. And this was a really illuminating history of Mm -hmm. currency, but also just finance uh, in general, as he Mm -hmm. kind of takes you through the creation of uh, money to debt to equity throughout the years. And he, uh, Foreshadowing what we're going to talk about a little bit, but this relationship between China and America, what he calls Chimérica, which is freaking awesome. Um, but uh, Dimitri, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so I want to I want to kick it off with this really interesting. Uh, I've listened to this interview with you and Grant uh, Williams, like five times uh where really? you kind of yeah it's so good uh i think because i think you hit so many uh nails just right on the head uh with this concept of financial nihilism and that's really where i want to start today so could you define uh what that term is uh how you used it, and what it, what it really means to you
0: yeah i well i define financial nihilism or market, market nihilism as a, an investment philosophy that treats the objects of speculation as though they were intrinsically worthless and it dispenses entirely with this notion that there is some underlying value or some empirical truth, and that while perception may differ from that, or prices may differ from that underlying value, that the two have some relationship, some relationship albeit tenuous perhaps. And I think that in some ways captures, in many ways captures for me, where we find ourselves today in this investment environment. It's something mm-hmm. that... It's something something similar. Tony Greer, who's also been on the program, has described as postmodernism in financial right. postmodernism, something like that. It's this this discrepancy that we find this um, this willingness to, to 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 view value as entirely relative or absent from any sort of underlying reality.
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the clearest places, I guess, where that's cropping up is in uh, this recent bout of kind of meme stocks and. GME and GameStop and AMC and all that kind of stuff. Um, where else? Like, why is this idea so important to you? Obviously, it's not great when you have kind of these random stocks running amok, and it's. You could make the argument that it's making a mockery out of our capital markets. But why is it? Why is it a more important kind of phenomenon to really dive into?
0: Well, it's a good question. I mean, I. I guess. Uh, it's... It's hard to imagine how a market economy is supposed to function without the financial layer, which is the capital allocation layer being tied to the underlying economy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so I think the problem with nihilism as a as an investment philosophy is that it completely uncouples the financial layer from the underlying economic layer, which means that the that the allocation of capital has no bear has no it is not tied to what the needs are of the economy, which ultimately makes the political system unworkable. And I think that captures some something of what we've been experiencing, which is that the economy is increasingly not working for people, even though the stock market's at all time highs.
1: Hmm. So let me ask you this question, because right now, a lot of people are questioning the system of capitalism in general. Um, and again, a foreshadowing of what I want to talk to you about later, you, you had this great interview with Josh Rogan, where you kind of talked about what the American experiment initially represented. So for you, when you think about America as a country, the American dream, the American experiment, whatever you want to call it, what are the most important ideals that people need to be aware of? And how important is the idea of capitalism uh, to the American dream or experiment?
0: Well, um, so I mean, America was founded as a as a cap. I mean, it's a it's a capitalist country. Obviously, it was founded on on um, on on entrepreneurialism and um, you know it, uh, notions of of the individual. Uh, and it's gotten, I think, less in some ways, capitalistic over that period of time. Um, but it's, it's hard. I mean, I think I'm struggling with the, the word capitalism because it's so wrought with, um, implied meaning and people have different definitions of what they mean. And it's one of those words that's constantly used just like free market capitalism and freedom and democracy. I think that capitalism as we've understood it is not, is not how it's practiced today. And, you know, many people have commented on this, um, it's the, the, the system, our capitalist system has become much more financial. Again, this feeds back to the point about the financial layer separating from the underlying economy, the, but we've gotten to a point today where so much wealth, I mean, the system has become very regressive in its distribution of, of ownership and so much wealth is not concentrated in such few hands that we really are at risk of losing our country to private interests. Um, because the system has become so corrupted. So I don't think that free market capitalism, so to speak, and Republican democracy can work in, with, in a system that recycles money increasingly towards the top in this way, because even if you attempt to fix the problem through, a, through socialist programs, you've done nothing to address the underlying power dynamics, which continue to accrue power towards the top. So what we would like to see is a system that rebalances, re- rebalances more organically, and unfortunately, we haven't made any progress in that in that domain.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting that you frame it like that. There's a guy. So I'm actually talking to later today. His name is Peter Doyle. Um, he's one of the co-founding partners at Horizon Kinetics, and he has a pretty interesting anecdote that you know he was actually net short volatility going into March of last year. Um, and he thought, wow, I'm going to get absolutely shellacked here. This is about the worst time to be net short vol, uh, ever. And he starts deleveraging and unloading, you know, unwinding his trade essentially. But that's exactly when the fed steps in, puts a bottom or a floor in the market and he's kind of saved. And I think that's pretty unique. His reaction is pretty unique. A lot of people would say, Hey, thanks for that handout uh, and saving my butt. Uh, what he actually said was that was the first time in my life where I really started to doubt that capitalism was real, um, or that, that we were living in a truly capitalist society. And I think there's an entire generation of folks that kind of saw that. And I think that's post-financial crisis in 2008, right? Because everyone needs to believe that you live in a world with rules. Um, and if you look at kind of crises that happen throughout history, be it kind of socio political crises or financial crises, which tend to get wrapped up, they're highly interrelated, uh, but there tend to be resets after that. And I wonder if, like, you talked a lot about the 2008 financial crisis, but I wonder if we almost missed an opportunity to do a bit of a reset there, both financially, but also just in terms of our institutions as well. And it seems like we're botching the same thing with COVID as well, because it sucks. You kind of got to take your medicine, and but there are these resets and people do tend to build after them. So do you, do you see any truth to that? Do you think that we are kind of missing an opportunity to do some much needed resets? post-crises.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. You know, what's that saying that uh, capitalism without bankruptcy is like uh, religion without hell? (laughs) Um, You know, and 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 I don't think it's a coincidence that both the Japanese and now the Americans and the Europeans as well um, have described their post-bailout crises. In the case of the Japanese, it was in 1989, early 90s, as zombification of the economy. Because what you do, you don't have the bankruptcy, the death and the renewal that you need uh, in order to sort out the winners from the losers. But on top of that, besides having these zombies that persist, you also have this uh, a, a, I mean, investors update their behavior set, right? Mm-hmm. So many behavior so many investors will say, "Well, yeah, the stock market's overvalued, but we have a new baseline of value. Because the Fed is there to prop up the stock market. Because the stock market is no longer a place to allocate capital and seek for seek higher returns in terms of revenues. It's a place where governments have to. It's a political utility, you know, mm-hmm. like Ben Hunt talks about. So I think that's the. I I, I agree with with uh, with uh, uh, your guest, which is that you the calculation has changed. And in such a world where the Fed stands at the ready and investors increasingly build their models with the expectation that the Fed sits at the ready, the Fed is increasingly unable to actually exercise the type of autonomy in raising interest rates or curbing excesses that it normally would because it's actually contributed to the mania and set new expectations. So now if it acts, it could crash the whole thing. And and I and and this it's it's a it's a concern. It's a concern both at the macro level and also I think it happens on the regulatory front when it comes to individual corporations and industries. Regulators are afraid to regulate because they're afraid that they're going to be blamed for a collapse in the value of the stock or the company.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, one other interesting thing there as well is like this kind of idea that models sit at the heart of a lot of the most important kind of economic decisions that get made in the U.S. today. Um, and on the one hand, economists have kind of the hardest job in the world because you're trying to, you're looking at probably one of the most complex systems in all of human history, right? Which is uh, kind of the economy and the stock market, uh, wrapped up into one. You want to put some sort of framework to understand what that is, but you also have some of the worst data, you know, to assess that. So you're kind of stuck with this really difficult problem of like, okay, we don't want to just have no frameworks and models. Uh, that's not really a good option, but at the same time, a lot of the frameworks and models that we have are kind of doomed because of these these we're trying to attack a, pro, a really difficult problem with not very much data. And the reason I'm highlighting this particular issue is because a lot of these models sit at the heart of policy decisions, both coming from like the Federal Reserve and the government. And there's a lot of stuff that can't make its way into those models. Um, and if you look at this history of globalization over the course of the last however many years, Uh, people weren't that worried about it in the beginning or the argument was that, well, this is actually going to drive down costs for consumers. So this is going to be a net benefit, right? It's going to be more affordable for people to live in the US. But what didn't crop up in those models or that understanding is people measure their life on a relative basis. So yeah, things might be cheaper, but if you see one group of the population getting inordinately wealthy or that's going to disenfranchise the rest of the people, even if it is cheaper to buy a flat screen TV at the end of the day. Would you say right now, and I'm kind of trying to loop everything back to this idea of financial nihilism, do you think that a lot of those policy decisions are, and just this overall feeling of inequity or inequality, do you kind of connect that to big policy decisions? And if so, what what are the most important ones where we've kind of missed, lost the plot a little bit? So I would say,
0: yeah, I agree about the data set. I think that there's a bigger problem though that explains why data, it's not just that we don't have the data, it's that the data we have is is really useless in the way that we would normally think about um, data in the physical sciences, because in markets, markets are a social science where the theories that we have about the market or the data that we publish about the market influences the data, right? Like (laughs) we influence ourselves. Um, It's a reflexive problem and which is what makes markets so complicated and interesting and exciting you know never the the curiosities never end. Um, with respect to you, you, you mentioned cheaper products, it just made me think about um, so we, we, the, uh, tell me what the second part of your question was because I kind of so the it, second it, it, part you know, so different directions.
1: The second part of the question was basically like look, uh, there was this argument on globalization where it was actually going to benefit. Every, well, actually, if you go back to some of the original arguments made about globalization, they said that exports were going to increase um, because you were going to lower trade barriers. That's kind of a hilarious. Trade
0: efficiencies, also.
1: Right, right, yeah, exactly. It was going to eliminate inefficiencies and ultimately would improve the quality of life of uh, across a whole bunch of different demographics in the U.S. because it would lower costs right it's kind of like the cpi measure of inflation where they're trying to gauge okay what are the things that people actually spend their money on and if those costs are going down then that should improve the quality of life of that group of people that was that was kind of the idea and i'm curious if you agree with that or not
0: yeah it's in, so um we've it's it's created a, si- a situation where and again where there's there are nuances here but overall Globalizations since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the acceleration of that and through the the late part of the 1990s has created a a dynamic where costs have declined and the costs of both consumer products and services as well as credit has declined. At the same time, in order to offset the declining wages and income, of the vast majority of, of of Americans, and what that's done is it's it's in, it's allowed a certain you know strata of society to become wealthier without creating political instability, or political volatility, perhaps. But it has made the system less stable mm. because it has it has meant that in order for the system to continue to remain stable, that prices need to stay low. But the problem is that both the price of credit and the price of goods and services is artificially low, goods Mm -hmm. in particular, because of supply chains that have benefited from growing efficiencies that result from integrated supply chains and globalization, which depends on the sustenance of a global order and also the cheap labor from countries whose wages have been rising. Um, So and then also the point about interest rates, that same dynamic is what feeds the lower interest rates. It's what allows us to import deflation, not just in terms of, of uh, I mean, it, it's the importation of deflation and the suppression of interest rates that work together. So that is not a permanent state of affairs. And I think it's actually made us more unstable as a society hmm. and as an economy, for sure.
1: Can you dive a little bit deeper into what do you mean exactly by the importation of deflation?
0: Because of globalization and the offshoring of supply chains and manufacturing, they've been able to benefit from lower input costs. Hmm. And as a result, they've been able to pass pass off some of those price changes to consumers, which has meant that that phenomenon that policymakers saw, which was that inflation was low and that was their gauge for economic health, and it was concerning, and so they kept interest rates low, was really a manifestation of this larger dynamic. And by keeping interest rates low and keeping the cost of credit low, lower than it should have been, let's say, what they've allowed to happen is a an acceleration of the price of assets and a buildup of these systemic inequities in the distribution of wealth, all facilitated by the importation of deflation, by the importation of lower prices in consumer goods that in the models that economists had prior to that process would not have occurred because much more of the the, the production was endemic to the economy itself, Yeah. to the national economy.
1: See, that's fascinating right there. So basically what you have is this entire, like we've kind of reconstructed the entire system. Like if you look at the American playbook, throughout the kind of 40s, 50s, and 60s, we were these manufacturers, right? And over time, like the big change that we did is we essentially exported a lot of those. Honestly, there's an element of correctness to this, these jobs uh, and manufacturing capability to China. And I love this idea of importing deflation, right? And kind of what we get there. Now, obviously, there are some subsections of the economy and society that benefit from that, and some that haven't done quite so well. Is it too much of a generalization to say, that kind of the lower class, the, or like the lower to middle class, really the, the folks whose jobs we've essentially exported have done not so well and this smaller kind of almost like international class of elites, um, have done quite well as the importers of let's say deflation and maybe the exporters of currency. Is that a fair assumption to kind of make?
0: Um, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this before, about the rise of an international elite. Um, that may just more, may be incidental or it's more complicated, that aspect of it. But yeah, absolutely, there, it, it is manifestly obvious that there is a certain class of individuals that have benefited from this, and, and the vast majority of people have not. And those that who have benefited, benefited from this are those who have pricing power in their own business or in their own wage. Um, and those traditionally have been businesses that have been software-related, which is why it's not any coincidence that so many companies pitch themselves as tech companies why because they have better scaling properties and better margins and those companies have fared better so the vast majority of people cannot be employed in those crafts or have not been which is why they haven't they've been left behind i would that's yeah. how i would answer that question yeah if i understand
1: it. yeah yeah no absolutely um i guess in on that same thread uh, i mean what is your kind of solution to I ask you a hard question here. What is what is your solution to this problem? Right, Because on the one hand, we obviously just had a presidential, uh, we had a president who essentially said, hey, all those jobs that we exported, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bring those back to the United States, which you could argue, I mean, he had some degree of success with. But do you think that is kind of the path forward where we kind of lean on the political system to bring those jobs back to the US? Or is there another way forward? Like, how do we fix Kind of this situation that we've put ourselves in.
0: Oof, yeah, this is very uh, complicated because I don't think. <sighs> Again, you know, if you were to focus just on bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States, you could do that, but you'd create so many other problems if that was your focus that it probably wouldn't be worth your while. I get the real question is what what is what what is the larger goal that we want? Is it to bring back manufacturing? or is it to create a more equitable society that is self-correcting and politically stable? I think that's the objective. The problem is that in order to do that, we need policy changes and we need political consensus in order to drive those policy changes. And so far we haven't been able to get that. We've had some marginal consensus when it comes to geopolitical posturing America has always had political consensus when it came to when it's come to defense policy, at least since the end of the world uh, since the end of World War Two. Um, so it's maybe not all that surprising that that's an area where there, there has been some consensus that's formed. Um, but I think, you know, we need much more. I don't I don't believe that uh, there, are, there are some smart people out there that are pushing for universal basic income. I think that's that's too dangerous to entertain, in my view because you create a patronage state from day one. You create a state now that you've given people something and now anyone that threatens to take it away, they're not gonna vote for that person. And you've also created an expectation, you've also created a new sort of, um, yeah, politicians are gonna see how successful that is and they're gonna to wanna to promise more and promise more. Um, so I don't think that's the solution. I do think regulation is a huge part of that, is, is a huge part of what the solution is and I think also, this is something else I've talked about. Unfortunately, America has been in a long period of moral decline and has become a more corrupt society. And that has, I think, driven the institutional distrust and decay. And so we're caught between, in this, rock, between this rock and a hard place, which is that many of us, probably most of us, myself included, I imagine you as well from our conversations, would be willing to sacrifice some amount of our personal wealth, good fortune, optionality, whatever you want to call it, constrain our behavior in order to positively affect the stability and well-being of our neighbors and the country. The problem there is one of trust. Which is that we don't trust the intermediaries who are in charge of actually carrying out that rebalancing. Hmm. And there's no really, there's no real, uh, there's no way to square that circle. At the end of the day, there's, it's going to be an uncomfortable and bumpy ride. And we risk when we empower the executives, we risk moving towards a dangerous level of centralization in the political body, in the, in the organs of government. But I think that's inevitably where we're going to go because we've moved so far to the extreme in terms of how we've privatized wealth and disrupted um, or allocated the private, pri- private capital and created new power centers. This is, the, this is the thing that's so dangerous in our society today that people don't think about it. It isn't that like, sure, I mean, there's no doubt that lots of people are, and many of them rightfully in, in bitter towards uh, the the sort of elites in society because they see that they are hoarding for themselves so much wealth that they don't know what to do with and meanwhile the vast majority of people are struggling paycheck to paycheck that is an absolutely legitimate gripe that many people have but there's something that's there's a there's another issue that isn't really talked about which is that money is power and when you, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons, one of the basic reasons why we have a, um, the kind of government that we have, is to put checks on power, and it, it's not, it's not just power, institutional power. If you accrue enough wealth, you can create an alternative government, and mm-hmm. you can use that alternative government to corrupt the official government or to take it over. This is how revolutions occur, how coups d'états work so i think this is just not appreciated and this is where we get into a larger conversation about internationalism and international elites because you get these international cabals of of very wealthy individuals across transnational entities that no longer see themselves as tied to any particular nation or any have any loyalty to that country whatsoever but rather see themselves as primarily elites and this is i think this is this is the other thing to understand which is that people are always looking for a, a static model that will that will work perfectly, the ideal model. These things don't don't work because it yep. brings us back to the problem of re- reflexivity and the fact that you are, human beings are always looking at the world and seeing how they can understand it, how they can apply those models to, to game it. And everyone else is seeing that and they're updating their models. So the world is constantly changing. It's impossible yep. to apply a static model to it.
1: Yeah. You, you know, you sent me down this rabbit hole, actually, in, a, in another interview that you talked about the first industrial revolution. Um, and if you look at kind of the development of this technology, like a, a lot of historians will say, hey, this was one of the most beneficial economic things that has ever happened in history, period, because it kind of gave rise to this big period of prosperity. Uh, you know, GDP per capita kind of went up, life expectancy went up, all of these really great things. You eventually kind of saw the rollover uh, impacts when, after about 80 years of economic prosperity, uh, things kind of rolled over, the economic growth train stopped, and then about 20 years later, we had the Civil War in the US. Uh, and that, not saying that there's a direct causal factor there, but I'm connecting other dots. Um, I don't know if you've dug too far into the GI Bill in general. But uh, post-World War II in 1944, we enacted this thing called the GI Bill, which, by the way, still exists today. And it was basically, it was one of the largest wealth transfers in human history, happened in America in the 40s. And there were kind of three different components to this bill, which was one, you were going to give cheap uh, education, uh, heavily subsidized uh, college for GIs. Uh, You were also going to give heavily subsidized home ownership in the access of like really, really cheap debt for mortgages and credit. Uh, So really easily available cheap credit uh, to promote entrepreneurship. These were fantastically successful programs, right? And that actually paved the way for that policy paved the way for the baby boomer generation, right? And you had this explosion in population. People are building out infrastructure, 80 years of prosperity. Mm -hmm. You could make the argument that what we're seeing right now is just the rollover of that good policy. And I, I love what you said Where people are looking for this static model that this is the answer and we never need to update it. But at the end of the day, governments and people tend to make policy decisions for a period of time, but it's not perfect, right? That's not the one answer. And eventually you need to go through a, a transition after a successful policy where you say, hey, that worked for a period of time. Now, for whatever reasons, X, Y, and Z, it's not working. We need to reinvent that. Uh, and that tends to be big transition points in history. Um, do you agree with that overall framework there? Would you make any additions? And like what kind of periods in history would you be looking towards as a, as a guide for the current transition?
0: You said uh, we basically are in a place where we've rolled over the GI Bill. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, what I mean is that certain successful policy decisions do pave the way for growth. But very rarely do you have a policy decision or a technology or whatever that creates permanent growth growth. And I guess the argument of what I mean by rolling over is that you had these very successful policies that led to credit creation, real wealth that paved the way for a boom in demographics, which is the baby boomers. Now, what we're seeing is kind of the end of the boomers, we can't create the growth or the population to sustain Mm -hmm. that, that continued economic uh, prosperity. Right. So now we're facing kind of the other side of that policy.
0: Yeah, so a few things. Um, So one, um, the point about uh, the GI Bill, what was really one of the things that was beneficial about World War II was the solidarity and the sense of of common mission and nationhood and identity that in common identity politics that came out of that period. And it, allowed for the development of social programs that people were more than happy to pay for because they felt a social debt to those around right. them who fought in the war but they also felt a, 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 an empathy and kinship we saw this of course in post-war europe right the most socialized area of western societies where people had experienced a common tragedy and they understood that they were in this together and that they needed to build their economies up, um, up again. So that's, that's one thing in terms of the demographics. Um, I mean, this is, this is a major problem and it actually drives a lot of the bad policies that we have because and and by the way, this, this phenomenon that I'm about to try and describe, isn't just the case with demographic, with social security and other, um, uh, unfunded liabilities and obligations. It is largely true across the board, which is that socioeconomic economic systems have embedded inside of them growth expectations, and those expectations are factored into all the the the, the counterclaims, liabilities, etc. In the financial layer, and what we've done is we've set up a system that can no longer meet by its design the expectations and obligations that are in the system and the way in which policy and the that came to a head in 2008 and central banks acted as the sort of lenders of last resort as the as the as the as the backstops of the system. And which is not that's not their role. Their role is to temporarily temporarily ease cycles of illiquidity in markets, not to backstop the entire uh, collapse of society because of these fundamental incongruities between the financial obligations and the capacity of the economy to fulfill those obligations in the form of growth. And so demographics is one area where those things come head to head because we have all these obligations to aging people, but increasingly we're unable to fulfill them. So in order to fulfill them, what we've been doing is we've been easing credit conditions, but at some point, that's not going to work, and we've been able to ease credit conditions because of the other dynamics that we described earlier, which was the the importation of deflation and the and the quote savings glut that was that's created by this globalization, and incidentally also by the technological revolution, which has depressed the price of consumer goods and other things that people consume. But there are limits to that, and you know, I I think about. You and I, you sent me an email before this conversation. You asked me about a social contract. I think about social, the social contract that the United States has in three, sort of three legs on a stool. Mm-hmm. One of those is security, internal and external. Another one is growth and another one is mission. And in terms of growth, the United States has been failing on that contract since the mid 1970s, and that's not getting any better. Um, and it has it, 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 it directly impacts our security over the long term, and so I think you know I, I think that that's yeah I think that's my answer to that question. I can go into it more, but
1: <laughs> yeah, could you actually please go into that more a little bit? So I love the three stools that you outlined there. So one is growth. Can you talk a little bit more about what are some of the other social? What are the other two important stools? Yeah, well,
0: obviously security is a hugely important one. It's the cent- it's the most important one of all because without security you can't have growth and you can. You can have a mission, um, I suppose. You know, so that's maybe maybe separate. But growth is contingent on security. Security creates the space in which to grow an economy, in order to have commerce, and 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 a space in which to be able to take risks, right? Because if you're feeling insecure, you're not going to take risks by definition. So that relates to external security in the form of protecting your borders, physical and virtual and internal security, which is we think of it as domestic police forces and things like that. When it comes to um, growth, we just talked about that a little bit. Mission is one that people don't and don't really think about. Um, and I would say it's mission and also story like you people that live together um, that are governed by the same laws under the same security umbrella and and with whom they transact economically, need to have some framework in their mind of who they are and who the others around them are. That's the story that they tell about themselves and each other. Nations that have more not coherent stories and also ones that are that are strongly communal, I think, fare much better in that regard. The the, in fact, this might be—I might be kind of straying off a little bit from the point about mission and the three stools. But when it comes to mission, I absolutely think that it's not enough to give people uh, economic growth, to give them fancier products, and to give them security. That's what the the new world order was designed to be after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's what neoliberalism is, right? It's this idea that we are in a uh, in a post ideology world uh, even though neoliberalism is itself an ideology but communism is dead market capitalism is the new default quote ideology the only one true ideology it's not an ideology in other words and the future is people just getting wealthier having more relaxed lives and feeling increasingly secure because uncle sugar runs the planet and unfortunately it turns out that that's not enough for people uh people want more than just goods services and security they want to feel like their life matters purpose and yeah, i think and that goes back to the point about financial nihilism so the the state has an obligation to provide a national purpose without a national purpose i don't believe uh, a, a state can survive in the long term and i think what the united states had previous before the the dissolution of the Soviet Union the the uh, the disillusionment um, of the Soviet Union was there was a mission around fighting communism and pushing capitalism and democracy around the world once that was gone nothing really replaced it nothing meaningful replaced it whereas the Chinese social contract has something it has communism That's their organizing ethos and ideology. It's communism with Chinese characteristics. And for better or worse, that gives people a sense of mission around goal. And uh, the, the United States currently lacks that. It also is failing on the growth side. And since I would argue. I don't know exactly, but I sort of put the date around 2008. They have begun to falter in the area of security for a variety of reasons. And that's concerning.
1: I, Dimitri, I could not agree more. And you started to bring up kind of our next topic that I want to get into, which is China, but just to give everything full circle. And I really love that you just connected that to financial nihilism, because for me, that is full circle. And that's why I wanted to start with this for you. There is, I I completely agree with the, the legs of the stool there that you laid out for what the American social contract is. I would also add that I think there were certain, almost more like mechanisms to achieve. Those specific goals, like for instance, home ownership is a really interesting, a bit of a lightning rod. That was a, a core tenant of the American dream, right? Ownership of property. Uh, and that was a big financial tool that people used to have that is kind of becoming further and further out of reach. But connecting everything back, right? What's going on with these meme stocks? Um, honestly, in a certain way, the Trump presidency. Also, in another way, crypto. To me, I see these all as being symptoms of the fact that America is failing to deliver on its social contract. If people don't feel bought in, if they don't see a path towards achieving that prosperity or that purpose that you outlined, I think people tend to opt into, and you corrected me on this email before this interview, higher convexity payout situations where there's more volatility, there's more risk, but people see that path. Is that a fair connection to make, do you think, or what do you think about that, that assessment?
0: So to be clear, um, the the fact that economic opportunities are fewer, and the opportunity to climb the ladder is there are fewer opportunities to climb the economic ladder that people seek these higher convexity payouts in order to make it yes, Um, and and exactly because you can't save your way to prosperity. Um, So it and it doesn't and if if you're poor there's no big difference between uh, being poor with you know a few thousand dollars in, in the bank account versus being poor with nothing. So if you have a few thousand dollars from a stimulus check, you might as well YOLO into some meme stock with the optionality that you might you know, strike it rich. It's the same reason that people allocate some percentage of their paycheck to playing the lottery. It's just that financial markets were never intended to be lotteries. That's not why we, we have them. That's not why they're there. They're there to help allocate capital to businesses that need it so that they can grow profits and enrich the economy, provide more jobs, and make everyone else better off. So that dynamic is broken, and markets are increasingly casinos.
1: Howdy, guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrixport. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can. Well, Matrixport makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about, but they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part, because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step, you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. Talk about a no brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I'm telling you, I'm the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Now, I want to kind of transfer to this next uh, thing that you were saying, basically comparing and contrasting the Chinese mission, as it were, to kind of the American mission and just talk to me a little bit about how you think about China right now and the relationship to the U.S. on the global stage. Do you right, see them right. as a challenger? Do you yeah. think it's a uniting factor for the U.S.? How do you think about it?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's a dangerous, it's dangerous, on, it's a double-edged sword because um, they're very, I think the, 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 uh, the concerns that have been raised about China and the atmosphere around China it has been appropriately attenuated um, or appropriately um, um, calibrated. Um, but I do think that we could you know, move into a, to an extreme of turning them into a boogeyman in order to avoid dealing with our own domestic problems. So just, you know, I want to make that point. but. I, you know, I, I think, again, this is another area where we talked about capitalism early on, um, the CCP or the Chinese Communist Party, a lot of people are using that buzzword now, you know, and that it, it, it's, a, it's just one of those things where people say the nature of the Communist Party, this, that, but, you know, and, and I, I recognize that, but the truth is that we really have been operating with naive conceptions about what China is. And the reason that we've been operating with those misconceptions is because we were led to believe by the powers that be that China was no different than any other international participant in the global order. They were a country that was, um, yeah, did some, that maybe was our enemy prior to 1989, but just like the Soviet Union, they had seen the light, they understood that communism was a failed ideology, and even if they didn't fully embrace it as quickly as the as the uh, as the post-Soviet Union did, they were going to eventually come on board. And all they needed was to taste that sweet, a little bit of that taste that sweet capitalism, you know, uh, that those that sweet consumer capitalism, um, and and rage and raise their wages because there was an operative theory that. Wealthier people tend towards democ- democracy and democratic values. Um, maybe, but they were they were trending towards democratic values in Tiananmen in 1989, and they got crushed. So, what we've what we have what we've ended up seeing, in fact, is that the power of the Chinese Communist Party in China, which by the way is not a normal party, people don't understand that too. First of all, it's a one party system. And the CCP is a an insurgent organization. It was born out of the civil war. It came to power after defeating Chiang Kai Shek's army, which incidentally is still an open wound sitting in Taiwan. So the, the Taiwan is it's a it's 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 it comes out of that period. That's the, that's the remnant of the civil war, which is why Taiwan is so important to the CCP. It's sort of um, Settling all family business, you know, uh, like in the in the, uh, um, in the Godfather, and so I, they're fundamentally insecure organization politically by the standards of modern Western institutions because they don't have they don't have democratic accountability. There aren't there aren't public elections in China, and so they need to constantly hit targets in order to satisfy the their these political promises, which is what keeps them in power. And so they're willing to take risks that U.S. policymakers simply aren't willing to take. I think, um, and to that effect, I think that their ambitions are vastly different than what most of us thought. They're not content with simply becoming wealthier. In fact, what they've done is consistently used the greed of Western elites and our love of money to further their own political objectives. They use money to infiltrate and and influence American institutions and American corporations, and I liken the organization—it's not a perfect analogy—to a boa constrictor. I mean, they don't leap out and grab you know the, the the head of the prey and then squeeze it. They sort of slither around. They still ambush. They slither around and they begin to squeeze and they asphyxiate the bodies, the 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 um, the appendages of Western society, of our corporate, political and social institutions. And and that's what we've been seeing compromising individuals. And so U.S. policymakers and the public are starting to wake up to this. Um, and as they wake up, you can see that that's not appreciated in China. And so it's not clear yet where if we're going to find a new equilibrium that doesn't um, just mean continued escalation, because right now that's where we've been. And I, I don't know what the answer is, um, but it's, uh, it's concerning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What um, my interpretation, so I've started to pay a little bit more attention. And frankly, I think what's going on right now, we're recording this interview on July 28th. Um, China is in the midst of cracking down on a $100 billion sector, right, their, their kind of education uh, sector. And at the same time, they're kind of trying to clamp down on commodity inflation. They're trying to clamp down on, uh, you know, big Chinese tech companies listing on US exchanges. They're trying to curb the prices of homes. These are very different actions than even if you look at what's going on in the US. And what it's made me think is I'm clearly not under, I'm looking at an organization here and I'm not, I'm applying my own frame of thinking to it. And clearly it's not a great judge of how this organization thinks or what their goals are. You've been covering this for a long time on your show. I'm going to ask you to speculate here, but what do you view? Like, how do you interpret these recent actions from the CCP? And what what's their frame of mind? Like what's their end game here? What are they trying to do?
0: Well, first of all, it just shows you how different the society is. I, recently, I was listening to a podcast and if I remember correctly, Someone in China, a citizen in China, got life in prison for waving a, a flag to free Hong Kong, um, or something close enough that I, I feel confident saying that. Imagine that. Imagine if you know you, you or I went to jail for the rest of our lives because we 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 made some statement, like some analogous statement against the U.S. government. It's unthinkable. Yeah. This is the this. So this is this is the power that the CCP has in China. And they preside over a 1.3 billion people. Like I said, if you under, if you think of them as an as an insurgent organization that operates from a, from, a, from a constant state of insecurity and illegitimacy, political uh, democratic illegitimacy, I think it's easy to come to the conclusion that their only path to to survival is constant is is, is, is constant expansion. It's the expansion of their ideology, because currently the, the world is organized in a fashion where global democratic Western values are incompatible with CCP values. And in order to make the Chinese elite secure, ultimately, they have to make the world safe for the CCP, for Chinese communist ideology. And I think that ultimately means their vision is, i'm totally speculating here by the way it's it just has to be said because i don't actually know but this is how we get into a problem which is that we're trying to surmise what each side is thinking and wants and no one ultimately knows that maybe even chinese communist elite don't know but i i think their goal is to create a global totalitarian instrumentarian along the lines of shoshana zuboff techno superstate, and that's going to look very different than anything that we currently have in the US. And that's a that's a danger both because of what it represents as a threat, but also in terms of what we might do in response to try and counter it. And I don't just mean in response by doing some kind of harm to China, but to ourselves in order to justify things that we need to do to combat them, right? And we've already seen that since the, the 9/11 attacks, we've lost tons of freedoms in the U.S. in order to fight this boogeyman of international terrorism. And that's my concern also with China, to my point, which is this is a legitimate threat. But we need to come to a clear determination of who we are, what our values are, what's important to us, what we're willing to sacrifice in order to keep us physically secure and what we're not. You know, and that's going to be that's a really tough road to walk.
1: I completely agree with you, by the way, uh, I tend to subscribe to the belief that uh, empires fall. It's a combination of external and internal factors, very easy to chronic, like to categorize and look at external factors, much more difficult to point to something like you use this great phrase uh, earlier, moral decay, right? That's just, it's kind of harder to subject, like objectively point to that and say, Hey, this is part of the reason why this empire is falling. Um, a lot I of guess,
0: companies fall for the same reasons. A lot of companies fall for the exact same reasons. They become morally decrepit. Uh, They become, or another way to say that is they just become content with the status quo and fail to innovate, fail to look ahead, and they just don't want it as much. Yeah. And there's a lot of concern. There's concern in the zeitgeist in the United States for a long time that the Chinese just want it more, you know?
1: Totally agree. Um, I guess my, my question to you is where I struggle, maybe you can help me, is what's is, what's the catalyst going to be to unite folks? Because you, you talked before, like if you go back to the GI Bill, people felt this big social debt towards those who'd fought and defended our country. That's that catalyst of World War II allowed us to summon the political will to to pave the way for this big transfer of wealth and these ultimately great policy decisions that led to about 80 years of economic prosperity. When I'm looking at the current situation, We need to be able, we need to somehow find it within us to summon this political will, but I just struggle to see the catalyst. I guess that's my problem. Do you agree with that overall framework? And is there a catalyst that you see on the horizon for you?
0: Man, Michael, um, we've been consistently unable to find a catalyst period, haven't we? I mean, it's the same thing in, in financial markets so many events that would seem to be catalysts for a resetting or a recession or a bear market. Uh, it, it seems that uh, people have grown increasingly indifferent, which brings us back to the point about nihilism, um, whether it's a, a global pandemic, um, whether it is you know the assassination of Soleimani. Nothing seems to uh, disturb this upward steady upward and onwards upward and upward and onwards progression of markets and the just sort of steady equilibrium of nonsense and disunity in our political system it just it just holds together as 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 dysfunctional as it is it continues to sort of plot along and we all know that that's not sustainable like no one no one believes that that's in Sustainable indefinitely. The question is, at what point does it break? What does it take to break? To your point, to bring it back to your point, like, and I, I don't know what, I don't know what the catalyst would be. I guess it may just be when the U.S. cannot continue to fund its deficits anymore. Uh, it may just have to be that, which is terrifying, um, because you never want you never want your government to be in a place where it ha- it acts because it has to. But that may be it. I don't, I don't know. Even if a massive cyber attacks, in other words, if like, let's say, um, there was a massive cyber take, cyber cyber attack in the United States, and you know a thousand people were killed, and the government came out and and uh, uh, blamed China. Well, half the country still wouldn't believe it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know they would. Uh, we, it just, it, I, don't, I don't know, man, I, I, we're in a, it's a really weird place. I don't know, I don't have a good answer to that question.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a tough one. And the reason I think it's such an important question to answer, maybe the most important question that we all need to find a way to answer, is because, at least for me, again, going back through history, if you look at periods of peace, the social structure of different nation states, and this, by the way, is reflected in biology as well, Um, whether it's like a herd of lions or gorillas, there tends to be the most peaceful periods are when there's one dominant superpower that you almost don't even want to challenge, right? So at different periods of time, that's been different empires. You used to have the Pax Romana, right? They were the dominant empire and they actually facilitated peace. Um, There was Pax Britannica when they were the dominant uh, empire. And right now we might actually be looking at the end of Pax uh, Americana, um right where we were such a dominant superpower that essentially it's become a bit of a joke team America world police right but we did do that and we took it upon ourselves to make sure that we were exporting our ideology which was democracy and peace and you know if you ask Putin that's western western hypocrisy but you know we were successful to a degree um I guess my question to you is do you see China as being a legitimate disruptor or the potential end to America as that superpower facilitating peace?
0: Um, no, I, I, well, I mean, only if you, if you move us to a post sort of conquest world, I mean, they'd have, they'd have to, they'd have to take the West by force. No one by definition the Chinese model requires more um, coercion uh, and physical coercion than the the American model. Um, so n- no I don't I don't think so what what my concern is is that either we, we kill off a huge part of the planet because of a war or, that Western governments become more like China. Because I think the, the third option has been nixed, right? Um, which is China becoming more like the US. That's not going to happen. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I, like I said, I don't see the Chinese model supplanting the US model for global hegemony, unless we're talking about some point in the future after a massive war And the, the only sort of empire left standing is the, is the Chinese empire.
1: Sorry, maybe let me rephrase it a little bit. I'm actually not saying probably the most likely outcome here is a direct war where the leader emerges the hegemon, but more like, instead of going from this one superpower world, right. Where nobody kind of challenges the U S to a two superpower world. Right. And that is an entirely different order because nations suddenly need to think "Hmm, hmm." do I ally with the U S or do I ally with this emerging Asian power, right? And if you actually look at what's going on from a, there's a great infographic out there of uh, different trade relationships. Uh, and it's like, if you look in 2000, the US was by far the, the dominant trading party of like the entire world. And now if you look, it's been almost completely replaced by China. So this right. forces countries to have to make some interesting decisions, well, That's right? where we are right now. Right. We, we are in a bipolar world
0: today. The difference is that the U.S. hasn't really accepted that mm. uh, it's not a bipolar world like with the Soviet Union, uh, but it's close enough to matter, and the U.S. hasn't recognized the position it's in. I think it still operates with this idea that we're the U.S. We're we're arriving at your country. Um, you know, m- you know, come greet us at the airport. Uh, we expect X, Y, Z, um, and I think that that's that's a problem because a lot of countries like Germany is a perfect example. Germany is heavily dependent on their bilateral relationship with China. The U.S. needs to be able to offer countries like this more than what they've been giving them in order to keep them in the umbrella. And they need to update the umbrella. They need to I mean, the U.S. is still we still have the most powerful international security institution is NATO. And NATO is a is an organization that, while still relevant and important, was created to fight the last Cold War. Um, so, we, you know, we really need to. This is where it comes back to something I've talked about before, which is we need, and I talked about it a little bit, a little bit here, which is that we need a, a very clear mission, and the role of that mission that's about educating both us ourselves, the public, and our and our friends around the world. Around what and who we are, and what our what our objectives are, and what our mission is, and and developing a whole of government approach to dealing with this multi-decade challenge, um, and that's what the Chinese have. Incidentally, the Chinese operate with a whole of government approach. You know, every single corporation. There's no notion of Chinese companies going and operating overseas, or in, or entering relationships without the, the without concern for the larger CCP agenda. And we need something, I'm not saying we need that exact model, but we need something that, something closer to what we had during the Soviet Union, during the time of the Soviet Union and the Cold War.
1: Yeah. And so just to like kind of wrap up a lot of the different things that we're talking about here, why are we talking about financial nihilism uh, in the same context as we're, we're talking about China? One very popular theory or framework for looking at transitions across periods of time is this kind of Neil Howe, the fourth turning framework, right? Where he kind of, there are a lot of different ways to kind of skin this cat. Other other historians have kind of come to similar conclusions, but essentially what, what Neil says to summarize his work uh, is that every like 80 or so years, uh, there's a big transition kind of period, which is labeled as the fourth turning, Right. There are a lot of different signs that point to this idea that we could be nearing a fourth turning. Do you subscribe to that framework? And if so, how do you see that transition kind of happening? Like, what's the, how how are you just looking at everything that's happening and synthesizing it?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not entirely on board with generational theories of change. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I am to a degree, I, I recognize that uh, different generations think differently and and so contribute to to changing political values and norms and etc um, but I I overall do think that the the particularities of millennials like the, Way in which we grew up with technology, and our financial situation, um, and our exposure to media, and how we communicate, as well as where we are in our aging process and our ability to uh, access the levers of political power, is going to have a meaningful impact on the shape of the future. And so that's an important input into this equation. So I, I don't in any way minimize it. I just don't. I know like the fourth turning is is like sort of almost like, uh, not a, not a cult book, um, a sort of very, very, very influential book as a framework. And I, I get why it is. I'm just, so I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's relevant, but I think it's too complicated to be able to, to predict with that level of precision.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that as well. Um, I, that's why I said, like, I think another way of saying something like, uh, what the fourth turning is saying, which agree, he he makes it all about generational conflict, intergenerational um, conflict, and disparity, uh, is that what we were talking about? Which good policy decisions pave the way for growth for a period of time, and then they tend to roll over. That's that's kind of another uh, lens of looking at that same problem. By the way, this is you know this brings us to
0: a conversation about um, sound money, right? Because of this being a, yeah. a blockchain crypto program, which is that. Um, you know, I was, for a period of time, post 2008, I was a strong sound money advocate. Uh, But one of the things that I realized is that, like everything else, the monetary standard is always corrupted. Even if you have a sound money standard, uh, at least historically, you've always had to rely on some kind of intermediary. um, That has not in, in any case, now we're, I'm opening up a new front conversation, but, but the, the larger point I, I was trying to make is that you can't get away from the political problem. Politics for me sits at the center of everything and politics mm-hmm. sits at the center of money. It is it is a there is politics comes before money. Power comes before money. Uh, money comes out of the political arrangements that, that create the security and the space for commercial activity.
1: I completely agree. I think you said this actually, which was that Alan Greenspan actually used oh. to be a sound money guy too. Um, and he, the reason that he kind of changed his tune was because of exactly what you're saying. Now we're getting into some meat here. And i I want to be very careful in terms of how I phrase stuff here. But <laughs> I want to talk about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community in general of which I would consider myself firmly in that camp. Um, One of the challenges, I think, of being a Bitcoiner for a long period of time is that, A, it's been covered horrendously in the media, and you kind of keep needing to answer what I feel like are the wrong questions to be asking. Um, Throughout the years, it's been so many different iterations of what I consider inane or non-consequential questions, but there are real legitimate concerns um, and criticisms of Bitcoin like there is with anything that exists in the world. And you just hit one that I have been unable to rationalize with myself. And it's honestly made me adjust my time horizon on Bitcoin as an investment, which is you can't get away from this idea that governments do not abide... By monetary speed limits. There's a reason why the gold standard failed because in very important ways, it's counter to human nature. And something I haven't been able to answer for myself is how a Bitcoin standard would be meaningfully different from the gold standard at the end of the day. Because if people don't behave like that, if they say to hell with it, we'll figure out the money after, which lines up with my worldview of how humans work and think, then I don't see it. It's hard for me to see at least a future where Bitcoin is a reserve currency in general. And that, I think, is a very legitimate question to ask. And it's kind of a shame that you can't ask those sorts of questions um, Mm -hmm. without a lot of blowback, I guess.
0: Yeah, so um, I agree. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I think Bitcoin as a monetary proposition as a political revolution made sense only in the context of being able to use it independently of the existing financial architecture and outside of the state, an extrajudicial form of commercial interaction. And and yes, while it is true that you can certainly transact with Bitcoin completely independent of domestic financial architecture, you cannot do so in a way that is meaningful for commerce. You can do it only as a, a sort of internally consistent database that references value internally um, or references to external value but doesn't, cannot be used as a sort of, as a way to lubricate the economy. And that ultimately means that it's dependent on the financial system in order to work, which brings us back to the problem of politics. and um and there are also many other reasons for this but this is one of the reasons why i think many in the community have uh, consoled themselves with the idea that bitcoin can serve ultimately as a form of private sector wealth redistribution uh as a private sector Ponzi or pyramid scheme that allows for people to escape the uh the constraints of financial repression that exist in the traditional financial system, and uh, basically pyramid off of each other into this new database that remunerates global wealth within it, and in, and basically makes those people who got in earlier progressively richer. Um, other than that, I don't see what Bitcoin is. And um, you and I have talked about this. I I was, in, you know, in the early days of, of crypto, um, it, it was exciting to me. It had that kind of, um, idealism, uh, ridiculous idealism that you get in the early stages of technological revolutions, um, similar to the, to the internet. The difference is that like the internet, the internet also became captured, it became captured by commercial interests, by the government, um, you know, overregulated, centralized, etc. And it lost that that um, that anarchic utopian excitement that it had in the early days and that building ethos. Similarly, the same thing has happened in crypto. The difference is that you can't say it in crypto. You can say it when it comes to the internet. You can say the internet doesn't feel like it used to. But you can't say that in crypto because you're just spreading FUD. Because what you're ultimately doing is you're you're seen as endangering the price, you're you're seen as endangering the project of of promoting the redistribution of wealth into the hands of those who um, w- got in early or were able to uh, allocate sufficient space on the hard drive, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So. That is a huge problem. And it's a problem, not just in Bitcoin, it's a problem in the entire crypto space because the entire field is tokenized. It's tokenized software. And I think ultimately this is bad for software development. I don't think it's actually, I I thought early on it was. I was very naive around this subject. I thought, wow, this is great. You, this is a, a, a phenomenal way to encourage and crowdsource the capital needed for development rather than have to wait for some bureaucrat to, um, to allocate a few million dollars to this particular university to help you know, fund the research that can lead to the development of these important protocols for coming to, to agreement um, in a decentralized way. Instead, we're going to have the private sector do it. It's going to do it that much faster. But what ended up happening was just like everything else, everyone became obsessed with the financial layer. Everyone became obsessed with trading the tokens and getting rich quick, and that's why you know it just become uninspiring to me. It's not interesting. Um, there are things that are interesting, for sure, in crypto. The problem is they get drowned out by the noise. It just becomes too difficult to sort through all the bullshit. Hmm. And that's where I kind of fall down on this whole, in this whole industry today.
1: Yeah. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. There are some things that I vehemently agree with you on. some things that i definitely should i I
0: dress up as a with a bear ears and like claws (laughs) no
1: i I, look i think it's really important and honestly if there's one thing that i will take away looking back on this in 10 years is that uh crypto if nothing else is a fantastic study and bias in general um i i mean here's my position that i'm coming at this from the thing that i most probably disagree with you on there is that crypto isn't exciting i i mean this is a space that i'm going to spend my career in um i've decided. Uh, And the reason, part of the reason there is because once you move past Twitter and these posts, which I don't like seeing any more than you do, um, the people in this space and the genuine energy and the enthusiasm that doesn't necessarily manifest in the correct way on social media is palpable. Uh, and it's part of that. Like I can make all these arguments to you, which I'm going to, uh, about why this is a fundamentally interesting paradigm shift more so than just a technology. But at the end of the day, that's not really what drives any human's behavior. It's not what drives my behavior. There's an intuitive gut sense that what I'm witnessing is something fantastically intellectually interesting. And I think value creative as well. Now to address some of those points, um, on. Bitcoin as a whole, I'm a little bit torn because I, you know, the, the argument that has resonated most with me comes from this guy, Greg Foss. And what he said is, uh, if you look at uh, interest rates right now um, on, in the bond market, like the sovereign bond market, they don't price risk correctly anymore. And there's pretty good, actually, reason to suggest that that might not be the case, uh, if only for the, fa- the fact that monetary policy, at least in the US, is designed to systemically lower interest rates. So what he looks at is the CDS market the credit default swap market. And he looks at Bitcoin as essentially being insurance. I actually do think Bitcoin is an effective hedge against what's going on in global central banks, uh, global central like money printing and stuff like that. My beef with it is a long term investment. And the reason why I've shifted my view from a forever hold to like a 15 or 20 year hold, I'm as I'm talking to you, my computer is perched on Ray Dalio's study of big debt crises. And historically, governments do go through these, uh, the need to restructure their debts, right, and create growth. They're historically troubling times. It's not always fun. Governments do tend to go through and solve these issues. So, for me, the reason why gold's ultimately not that interesting as an investment and Bitcoin eventually will not be as interesting as an investment is because store of value is not a permanent trade. I would rather invest in. What i view as being productive assets than something like a hedge and i'm not i think bitcoin will be a fantastic hedge in the in the intermediate in the intermediate period where governments are figuring out how to restructure their debt and bring growth but like maybe to more of your criticism one of the things that it upsets me because i consider myself deeply a part of this community and i want to empathize with my fellow people in the community but it seems like on the Bitcoin side of things, people are saying, hey, everything is effed, right? Uh, gold bugs say the same thing. Everything is effed. Mm. You guys deal with this like burning house yep. wreck of a system. I'm just going to stack my Bitcoin. And for mm. me, that's not how I view things. I'm like, I want to be a part of the solution. I don't want to set the entire existing house on fire. I don't want to burn it down. I want to come up with creative solutions because ultimately what we're talking about is humanity and the fabric of society so that is kind of my that's my worry that that's where i'm like oh man i don't love how people are talking about this because i don't align philosophically
0: yeah i agree with that also i got you know i do want to say that i part of why i feel differently and feel less excitement is because i've separated myself um and i've put created a lot of distance between me and the projects on the ground, the founders, people that are building, et cetera, um, since the 2017, 2018 period. So I don't have that type of um, visceral connection to it. And, you know, might be following following a biased crowd of people. When I say biased, people that are really in the business of hyping Bitcoin, hyping cryptocurrencies, promoting it, uh, evangelizing it, um, canonizing its gospel so um, so that that that's a fair point um, I also agree with your your a larger point I mean it, you know, gold might have been a great hedge against inflation uh, and money printing in the 1930s but ultimately your ability to own it was contingent on the largesse of the state and the same will be true of Bitcoin um, you can own bitcoin without the Backing of, of without uh, the legal right to do so, just like you could own gold, but you're taking a risk that most people aren't willing to do. Um, and that becomes a really problematic, uh, more problematic today than it was in the case of gold in the 30s, because the vast majority of commercial transactions will have to pass through the financial layer, whereas you could probably conduct more transactions in the 30s in pure gold, legitimate transactions off books than you could have today in the equivalent sort of um, directly on chain. Mm -hmm. Um, So so there's that. Uh, And I but I also agree that the larger point, which is that, you know, in such an environment where governments can confiscate assets, having cash flow is important. And being able to generate value from whatever it is that you are invested in is important. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I I agree. I agree philosophically on that point. Uh, And I would love to see more attention paid um, to what is actually being created and creating actual value. And that, again, that for me has been another sticking point, which is that, let's say, let's take DeFi. Uh, So much attention is paid to DeFi and the decentralization of quote decentralization of finance but and again this might be just because I have a limited amount of time and attention that I can devote to this but I haven't seen anything in DeFi that meaningfully moves the needle for me in terms of how it's going to address basic societal problems yes it's made it easier to gamble you've it's increased the fun of the applications on which you can make bets. But other than that, um, you know, I don't see DeFi radically, uh, at least so far, radically improving the lives of of people. Now, I live in the West. I've heard people make the argument that in certain African countries, it's played a much more important role. Okay. Um, maybe. but also, you know that there's the most popular currency in in Kenya is still the impala, and that's traded on flip phones. So it's not like there there isn't a cultural norm in place for people to adopt these kinds of technologies. Which again makes me skeptical about have we have we moved too quickly because of the financial incentives, and still not address the underlying scalability challenges in the space. Yeah maybe you're in a better position to talk to me about that, because honestly, you, know, you spend more time there.
1: Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think about this a lot. Um, and like, let's go back to that analogy of the internet that you brought up, which honestly, I reference a lot too. A um, couple different, like two important components, right, to kind of pick out. One of the original promises of the internet was that this was going to democratize information. Right now, we're talking about democratizing uh, value and access to finance. Uh, it used to be democratizing information. In some ways, that's true. It's easier to get information than it's ever been. In more important, pragmatic ways, it has not democratized anything. It's actually led to the uh, centralization of some of the most powerful entities in the world today. Uh, And that kind of goes to my idea that I think narratives tend to be sort of BS. uh, Because generally, when you're summoning, again, it goes back to political will, when you're summoning enough of the resources to make a big transition or an investment, you need some overriding narrative that, in my opinion, usually tend to be false. But one of the other criticisms of the internet was almost the opposite. It was that this is never gonna be good for that much more than uh, sharing pictures of cats uh, and like faster yeah. email. Uh, what was that
0: Paul, Brugman, I think. Paul Krugman? Paul uh,
1: Krugman, the internet is never gonna be more, uh, you know, impactful than the fax machine. Now, how are those two things different? Well, one is to be a little bit naive and kind of buy into hook, line, and synchro, these narratives over time. But then the other mistake that you can make is to look at what it is today and extrapolate that. And you are absolutely correct. In my estimation right now, DeFi, the primary use case is speculation. Um, I'm not looking at what it can be today. I'm trying to assess on a first principles perspective, what does this technology have? And knitting a lot of different things back together, for me, the reason I think this is so impactful and why a lot of people miss the point of what's happening, if you look at this happens across political layers, it happens across uh, financial and economic layers. There is a massive consolidation and centralization of power. Those were words that you said as well in the beginning of this interview. To me, the fundamental uh, flip on its head that DeFi and crypto has is it actually promotes ownership of assets. And that's very important. So let me give you like a very specific concrete way why that's flipping the current status quo on its head. Let's look at an organization. People talk about finance a lot. Let's leave finance alone. Let's talk about Facebook and social media networks right now facebook has built probably the most impressive advertising machine of all time and it's not that different as a model from any other platform you as the user plug in you create free content on this platform right like who owns the photos really right when you post something or who owns the posts really who's getting the most economic benefit from that Mm -hmm. i would argue it's facebook um now and then they they sell access to you They, they monetize you as a product Same thing happens with robinhood same things happens with uber across a whole bunch of different types of platform models now let's flip that on its head and say what if actually i had ownership in like a wallet of different photos or posts and content and i could port that into different social media networks that it sounds like a small change but it's a huge shift in terms of business model because suddenly facebook can't figure out they can't monetize you anymore in the same way that they used to. And this very value extractive system of centralizing and monetizing participants and treating people like products is flipped on its head. So for me, that dynamic of ownership, right? And that happens. So you could see that across social media networks. It's happening on the exchange layer with the advent of decentralized exchanges, where instead of you putting your assets into an intermediary that they can then lend out and use however they want and ultimately benefit from your assets, you are the owner of those assets and you're plugging into a uh, open source software. And that that ownership economy is a big fundamental shift. Um, and that's one of the most important dynamics for me that I feel like gets left out of these discussions when it's like, what are central banks doing? And, you know, is it decentralized enough? I get it. Those are important things. But this idea of real asset ownership and pivoting away from big centralized entities is a very critical thing and i see it as actually being at the center of reach, like rejiggering our institutions and companies
0: so i mean okay just to clarify what you're describing though isn't that you don't need to have a decentralized permissionless database in order to do that you can do that on a centralized server
1: you can but it's not as effective because right. ultimately at the end of the day it, it you want it to be decentralized because it's distributing power in a different way
0: i, I mean well let's let's put a let's put a pin in that part uh, then the other observation was ownership you know the let's take the example of facebook like you could be a, a sharecropper which the majority of people in that model would be sharecroppers they would own they would uh, they would own their own labor but they wouldn't own anything else, and they would not have pricing power when it comes to their own labor. It's not clear to me what. Um, and by anything else, I mean you know, it's Facebook owns the platform. Um, it's not an open source platform. I don't, or you know, I, I don't. I don't, and I, I don't think that I, I guess it's not fleshed out enough for me to understand how that kind of a world simply giving ownership again we this was a lot along the lines of the argument made for tokenization as a mechanism by which to advanced advanced software development and in my opinion that hasn't happened uh so i don't know why this would be any different why in fact the the opposite has happened in my view um it's led to a lot of waste and it's held the industry back so i'm I'm not sure why giving people greater flexibility when it comes to selling aspects of themselves, of their labor, is going to be a net positive. I would actually argue that's been a, you know, one of the areas where we've seen that has been in influential, in in the rise of influencers Mm -hmm. who monetize parts of of their lives that were previously thought to be totally intimate and non-monetizable. And it's the there's something insidious, insidious to me about the commercialization of every part of of a human life. I, I I take the view that the solution when it comes to Facebook is not giving people the ability to get money in exchange for the data that Facebook collects, but rather simply prevent altogether the ability to use advertising as a business model in that particular context, because if you're selling your data, that doesn't change the dynamic that Facebook is incentivized to manipulate your behavior. Mm. You know, so that to me is the problem. Why is it in other words? So let me, let me throw it back to you. To me, the problem in this particular case, or the bigger problem seems to be the way in which these social media algorithms drive perverse behavioral outcomes and those outcomes directly impact our conception of each other of the world our ability to come to inter interagency can inter subjective consensus around political issues um, ironically right it affects consensus in a very real way um how would that's my view that think that's the most important thing how would what you're describing address that issue
1: yeah so overall i don't i mean let's One thing that I kind of weigh in my mind is this idea that there was a time when media was non-biased. And actually, you can trace the founding of newspapers in the United States. You know how newspapers actually got founded? Was they were published by different political parties. Mm -hmm. So there's never been a time, I think people kind of look back at this idealized time when media was non-biased, and I don't think that ever existed. But more importantly, I think what you've traded off is the locus of power has shifted from publishers uh, which was a more centralized model, um, to a, a model where almost everyone has a voice and therefore it's, they're they're just, it's just a different governance of how information Mm -hmm. gets distributed. Um, and you know, whereas before the editors at like the New York times and the wall street journal had an outsized impact in terms of how, uh, you know, events were interpreted by the general populace, there are pros and cons to that there are standards there, but Mm -hmm. also you do have a very important responsibility and center of power concentrated across very few individuals. Now that power has shifted largely to algorithms. Um, mm-hmm. There are pros and cons to that, I think in general. With
0: those to algorithms, but let's be more specific to the people who write those algorithms.
1: To the people who write the algorithms, right. right. But ultimately the people who write the algorithms are subject to the business interests of big companies as well. Um, and I guess my question is like- can Well, which are
0: owned by people. So Facebook is owned, is controlled by Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. He controls that company.
1: Right. And by mean, the way,
0: at what we've seen over these last few years and decades has been that uh, founders have in, and CEOs have become increasingly powerful. They have, they have voting rights that they have majority control of the board, um, and they have the ability to basically act as, treat the company as their private fiefdom. Elon Musk is another great example of that. So power has very much accrued uh and centralized and it's centralized into the individuals or a small cadre of executives
1: totally so So it's it's
0: not you know so I just wanted to make that point because yes you had editors at publications who had power but I'd argue now power is in the hands of a smaller number of people because you have two of these dominant platforms
1: talking about two different kind of problems here which is one dissemination of harmful information and two centralization of power I personally don't think that the problem of bias in media you're ever going to solve. I don't think it's a solvable problem. Like it's reminiscent of your political problem with sound money. Uh, I do not think, you know, as a founder of a media company, uh, whenever people say, Hey, like this network is trying to push this message, et cetera, there's some degree of truth that you have, but ultimately your purpose as a media company is to identify an audience who wants to consume a certain type of content and then feed that to them. So there is there's like, it's it is a bit of a two-way relationship, but ultimately I view media more as a mirror of what's going on currently in society uh, than a causal factor for how society interprets stuff.
0: Well, but except but as long as I agree, so long as we're not lumping Facebook together as a media company,
1: I mean, it kind of is a media company. I don't know how you would define it.
0: Well, well, you and I engage in normal commercial transactions. Facebook does not. Right. Facebook is, Facebook, it, Facebook, Facebook's business thrives on mind control and behavioral control. That's very different than what you and I do when we generate media.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm sure I totally agree with that.
0: To, you're able to influence people's opinions Um, marginally, large, powerful broadcasting corporations are able to do that more effectively. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't even come close to describing what it is that a company like Facebook is doing with its algorithms. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's sort of it's, you know, degree matters. And it's a much deeper degree of social control. Yeah. And I would just argue that that's just too much power.
1: So let's, so I, I agree it's too much power, but that's kind of getting at the, the last point here, which is how the, the theoretically this ownership economy that I was describing before the mm-hmm. reason why that solves that, right? And if you look at one thing that is very interesting and promising for some of the most successful founders in DeFi so far is what they're actually doing is creating these open source algorithms. Right, could be Rob Leshner in the form of Compound, where he's creating an internet-native interest market. Could be um, Kane over at Synthetics, whatever. And they're essentially relinquishing ownership of these. And it depends how uh, optimistic you really are. I genuinely believe that what these guys want, what the idea is, is to create these open-source, almost like public utility-type networks. Um, And release them into the wild. And you can actually see if you look at what's going on with MakerDAO, which is something that's been around for a long time, um, they have eliminated their foundation. A lot of those centralizing kind of entities around the platform are being eliminated, and there's a very clear roadmap towards decentralization. So it does, in my opinion, solve what you're talking about, which is centralized power being in the hands of very few. And one of the other, the last thing that I wanted to discuss here with you is, as well now, is I don't think regulation is the way to solve this. Ultimately, I have a kind of a poor view of when si- society is trending in a certain direction of the government's ability to successfully change that. Like you can you can kind of, tr- for instance, income inequality. If you go back to Bill Clinton's, uh, the years that Bill Clinton was in power, um, income inequality was a huge hot button topic as CEO pay as well. So what they essentially was did- the want- So is the national debt, but he actually ran a surplus. But what Bill Clinton did was he passed this bit of legislation, which would limit CEO pay in the form of dollars. Uh, so basically any pay above $1 million, uh, you couldn't,
0: I know where you're going. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. So you couldn't write it off as a tax, but it left open this loophole that CEOs, if they got paid in equity, that's Mm -hmm. a better alignment of incentives. And that still is tax deductible for the company. And now guess what happened, right? You can trace a lot of wealth inequality, to that well-meaning piece of legislation. So I think if you are just like, hey, it's illegal for Facebook to, you gotta change your business model. I just don't think it's gonna be that helpful. I just don't think that's the way to change things.
0: Okay, so a few thoughts. Uh, sorry, did I interrupt you or were you?
1: <laughs> no, I feel like you're gonna deconstruct. Also, to no. be just a heads up, I do have another call at 12, so yeah. I just wanna.
0: Sure, we it, can end yeah. it. Um, yeah. uh, so first of all, would you make the same argument for Glass-Steagall and the separation of investment banking commercial banking as being a something that led to unintended consequences that um, made the overall regulation
1: work made us worse off because of the regulation I, I mean to be honest I know what Glass-Steagall is I okay don't so so let, me, let
0: me just okay then instead let me just say this I think this is where we get back to yes absolutely regulations have unintended consequences this is why we need a whole of government approach and a massive sort of, I mean, this, the, the reality is we can't try to solve individual problems without having a sort of total view of what we want to accomplish. And right now, I absolutely agree that the political environment rewards progressives for regulating. Like I, I'm watching, you know, oh, Elizabeth Warren, um, who is... Um, who I used to, I used to like very much. And now I don't, I don't trust her. I think it's, I think she's just, you know, like a lot of other, these politicians, she's always, she's looking to find, um, She's looking for
1: boogeymen, it seems yeah, like
0: she's looking for something to sort of cla- make herself relevant again, because she's irrelevant. She wants to be relevant. That's my cynical take on it. Um, and I'll just make the other point about decentralization that you made earlier, centralization of power. I don't, again, I don't see that. Um, you know, so Bitcoin is, quote, decentralized, but yet it's so centralized in terms of who the individuals are who have the most allocation, who have the most wealth. When I look at guys like Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey's official net worth is like 15 million, 15 billion dollars. I imagine it's much higher if he invested early on in the early days of Bitcoin and never had to take profits from it sitting there. He hasn't even had to report it. No one knows really how much he's worth. So. Money matters. Money provides power, and I, again, I don't see if we acknowledge, if you and I are come to agreement that income and wealth disparity is a political problem. I don't see how uh, making it easier for people to own th- to own things that were previously unownable solves the larger dyna- problem dynamic of redistributive um, regressive income, centralizing that ownership. Mm. Um, which was my point about sharecropping.
1: So I, so we're kind of talking about a little bit of different things here. I actually want to rewind to something that you said earlier in this, in this talk, which for me, a lot of people, people that you and I, I think both speak to, uh, people tend to ascribe a lot of blame to central banks in general. Um, and they kind of make them out to be this boogeyman. You and some past interview you did gave this great explanation of like, why are central banks doing what they're doing? I agree with your interpretation entirely. I think they're trying to hold everything together. And I think society and economies have these targets, these growth targets that get built into everything that they need to meet. Our society is not meeting our growth targets right now. Uh, And as a result, central banks are stepping in and kind of trying to split that difference through money printing. And that, to me, like connecting everything that we're talking about, that money printing has, through inflating the price of financial assets, has actually horrendous impacts on wealth inequality in general, and that's causing a lot of the internal fracturing in the US today. Now, the solution that everyone wants, central banks included, is real bona fide, genuine growth. And I'm just telling, going back full circle to why I wanna spend my career in this space and what I ultimately see the promise in and how I'm gonna distinguish in between, again, which I would count myself a part of, the Bitcoin community and kind of this other ethos going on in Ethereum and DeFi, is that one community is kind of saying, this system is effed. I'm going to take a very secure asset and build myself a citadel, etc. And then there's this other. In my opinion, the way I interpret it is to say, "Hey, there's this unbelievable new way to organize ourselves. It's going to create real bonafide growth." And when I look at the economy today, I know this might sound crazy. The biggest growth opportunity I see is in this other part of crypto. Um, and that the reason why I'm the reason how this all lines up. Is like I think that what we what we need more than anything is real bona fide genuine growth. That's a big part of the social contract that you laid out, and I see it residing here. So for me, it's a growth story, a real genuine economic growth, new system with emergent properties that's gonna deliver real value and wealth that had not been there before. And and that's what we need. That's why I'm gravitating towards it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, because I'm a human being. Uh, and I do have, you know, there is a certain amount, part of me that's selfish and I'm like, Hey, there's a lot of wealth that's being created over here. But ultimately I think that's a big circle that we need to square for society in general.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that that makes sense. I'm going to point though to something else, which is a problem. Um, and this is a problem in financial markets as well, which is that as we've relied less, as we've relied less and less on dividends and more and more on equity repricing upwards, Mm -hmm. we've made it more and more difficult to discern. And differentiate between uh, between something that has value or something that has a high price. And again, in crypto, because money has been ample and there's been ample amounts of liquidity, the space it's it's difficult to assess which products, which 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 projects have long-term value, uh, because no one's relying on cash flow. And What would really be helpful would be a massive collapse in the space and businesses and projects that actually generate returns, sustainable returns to emerge from that cataclysm and individuals who have dry powder to be able to invest in them. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened in crypto and it hasn't happened in financial markets. Hmm. And it's why we are where we are in this insane casino. Where people might want to invest and might like me. Look, I'm an investor in crypto. I don't talk about it much because I don't want to get, you know, wrench attacked. Um, Although I'm very surprised, I'm somewhat sort of stunned by the lack of that happening to people. Um, And, you know, I recently, someone told me recently they wanted to host the next ETH Global in Bogota, which I know that Colombia has gotten better, but
1: I don't know. Um, So, I've actually been to Bogota. It's that. gotten a lot better. I've heard. Look, it's, it's great. Awesome. It's, it's awesome. It's still Columbia. Yeah. It's still
0: Columbia. I don't know. Um, so, so anyway, um, my, my, my point is that I'm not a, I, I am absolutely not an enemy of crypto or decentralized database technology. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of promise there, but Um, It's just, it's very hard to sort through the noise if you aren't, unless you are really dedicated to it night and day. And maybe what that also suggests is that it presents an asymmetric opportunity for people like you who spend your lives in that space. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I hope, I hope we get some, we get some clarity because, you know, it's, we, and I, I hope that's the case across the board.
1: Me too. I mean, part of the reason I'm excited to to chat with you, aside from your awesome bookshelf and your erudite knowledge that we were talking about before, uh, is you're one of the most thoughtful guys I know. Genuinely, really, really thoughtful. I and um, my my selfish, uh, outside of my own interest in just chatting with you and getting your views on all this stuff, I really do believe that the analogy that I use for crypto in general, um, which I obviously have a very positive disposition towards, is that you know when you're when you're a startup company. Uh, you, you you need everyone to be 100% on the same page, right? And that's why founders tend to be these more like scrappy, get it done no matter what, you know, don't care quite so much, just just, just make sure it happens, right? And they do these kind of ridiculous things to like get their name out there, like a Travis Kalanick Uber type guy, break all the rules, et cetera. Eventually, that doesn't work. And you get to a certain point where you have scale and prominence and influence and then you need a different type of leader, a different type of marketing. And that's when you bring in Dara Khosrowshahi, right? And I think at some point, crypto on the global stage, it, the, the marketing needs to change. You need to adjust from this like founder startup, everyone get on board or you're in my way type thing to having these kind of nuanced conversations. And I hope folks that are listening to this treat this as like that's the... That's what needs to happen, in my view, to move this space forward. It's like, okay, I get it in the beginning. It was a marketing trope. you got to be in everyone's face. you got to get the message out there. Cool. Now, if you want the next wave of people to come on board, you need more nuanced conversations about it. So that's... Yeah,
0: but it reminds me of how... Yeah, and it's like you can can either run around and, and stab people in the arm with vaccines, even if they don't want it, or you can try to convince people to take it. Um, by making a reasoned argument. If someone doesn't agree with you, you just let it go.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think, yeah, I think it's be- better to better to pull than to push.
1: I agree. Um, Dimitri, you've been so generous with your time, my friend. Where can, talk a little bit about Hidden Forces. Do a little plug for yourself here because it's such <laughs> a great podcast. For
0: anyone who's left, for anyone yeah. who's left. Um, <laughs> well, you can go to hiddenforces.io and you can check out our episode library. The show is also, I'm proud to say, not only subscription, 100% subscription-based, but we actually just passed the 2,000 subscriber mark. Congratulations. Our subscriptions, we have subscription options between 10 and $500 a month, and uh, which allows you to get access to the second hour of my conversations. I do a weekly podcast, the second hour. second, Sometimes it's as low as 30 minutes, but usually it's an hour of, of, uh, of the podcast is behind the paywall. I also have transcripts and outlines and notes that are available as part of those subscriptions uh, and uh and i also do a thing i, I never i don't advertise this because it's it's minimal and i do it just because i enjoy it but i have a 500 hundred dollar a month tier for people who want to do an hour phone call with me every month we just kind of geek out at whatever they want to it's a limited number and uh so those are those are the options for subscribers you can follow me at on twitter at kofinas and you can follow the hidden forces podcast which is now run by a wonderful new person who i hired she's fantastic named kate and that is at hidden forces pod so that's how you can follow us
1: amazing well thanks dimitri everyone you should absolutely go uh check it out hopefully you can tell from this conversation but dimitri is a very thoughtful guy covers a variety of subjects in a very uh interesting and engaging way so dimitri thanks for your time thank you very much michael All right. Talk soon.